As we approach this topic, let me pray for us. Father God, I pray that the words I speak will be a true reflection of who you are and that you will be with each of us today. Please be particularly with those who have or who are going through great suffering. May they find comfort in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we kick off our series on confronting questions with the topic, does evil and suffering disprove God? It's a big topic, it's a hard topic, and it's a topic that I've wrestled with over the years, sometimes on an intellectual level, but mostly on a personal level. As I've experienced the disorienting feeling of having your life turned upside down and all the things that you believe in or take for granted to be suddenly thrown into question. I've wrestled with this topic as I've walked with other people, dear friends and family, whose lives have been shattered by the awful and horrific things that have happened to them and I've grappled to know what to say or how to understand it. But I want to let you know that although there's some things uh, about evil and suffering that we can say, I think that this is just a topic that will continue to perplex and challenge us. And so if you're hoping that in 20 or so minutes that we'll have this topic neatly wrapped up with a bow, I'm sorry, but you're going to be disappointed tonight. Uh, But I do hope that together as we look at God's word and think about how it speaks to our world and to our hurts, that we'll see that it offers something plausible and even something that resonates with our experience of suffering and can provide us with hope that there is a God who cares for us, even and particularly when the floor drops out from beneath us. It might surprise you to know that there's a passage in the Bible such as the one that Tash read out. Actually, there's a lot of passages in the Bible that are like that. 30 of of the 150 psalms are psalms of lament. And there's even whole books of the Bible that are dedicated to the futility of life and the problem of suffering. The Bible is very realistic and honest that there is pain and suffering in the world. And it amplifies the voices of sufferers, expresses both honesty and hope. And so what's interesting is that the questions of philosophers and the cries of many have actually been given voice on the lips of those recorded in the Bible centuries ago. God, if you're there, where are you? What are you doing? I get no answer from you. Where is God? What are we meant to make of this? These are questions that confront us and they confronted the people in the Bible. Dostoevsky wrote the brothers Karamazov after having gone through extreme suffering in his own life and he was studying the biblical book of Job as he was writing his novel. Dostoevsky's father had been murdered by serfs when he was 18 And later in life, Dostoevsky himself was arrested and found guilty and sentenced to death by the firing squad. He was tied up and blindfolded. And just before the shots were fired, he and his friends were told by the Tsar that they had been pardoned. 
It was all a cruel hoax to teach Dostoevsky and his friends a lesson. And in the end, he was sentenced to four years of hard labor in a Serbian camp. To Dostoevsky, the problem of evil and suffering was not a theoretical conundrum. It was a burning issue. So in the brothers Karamazov, there are two brothers. One, Ivan, who is an intellectual leaning towards atheism. And the other brother, the younger brother, Alosha, who is training to be a monk. And they debate together the problem of evil. Ivan gives example after example of atrocities to convince Alosha that God is a waste of time. And Ivan goes straight to the greatest moral objection, the innocent suffering of children, moral evil. And he sums up his assessment of God like this. It's not that I don't accept God, Alosha. I just must respectfully return him the ticket. If God exists, Ivan wants nothing to do with him. He cannot comprehend a world where God exists and people do evil things to children and God does not do something. Ivan reasons, if that's so, he can take back the ticket. He doesn't want to live in such a world. When actor and comedian Stephen Fry was asked what he would say to God if he happened to be wrong and God was real, because Stephen Fry is a declared atheist, he expressed something very similar to Ivan in his response. Let's look at the video now to hear what he has to say. Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite of your protestations, suppose it's all true, mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, what's known as theodicy, I think, I, I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And you think you're going to get in no, on that? No, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Now, if I died and it was, it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because the Greeks were, they didn't pretend not to be human in their appetites and in their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all seeing, all wise, all kind, all beneficent because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac, totally selfish, we have to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a, a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. So, you know, atheism is not just about not believing there is a, is not believing there's a God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. That there you go. 
um, he's confronting these issues, and that is uh, Fry's perspective. He is deeply angry that a world could exist where God allows such horrors to occur. If God did exist, both Ivan from the book and Stephen would want to give back their ticket. For them, there's, for them the evidence suggests that there is no God, and if there is, he must not be worth worshipping. I think we heard that very clearly. Well, both of their objections stem from the basic dilemma that Epicurus presented in the early 3rd century BC. And this was popularized by David Hume in the 18th century. And it goes like this. If God is all-powerful and able to end suffering, but is unwilling, well, then he must be unloving. And the flip side of this, if God is all-loving but unable to end suffering, well, then he is not all-powerful. Either way, he is not worth worshipping. That is the logical objection to God because of evil. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I don't think it's really the main issue for most people. What we really care about is the evidential problem of evil, whether the existence of the extent and the extremities of evil provide evidence against the existence of God. But for the logic synergism of this statement, that there cannot be an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God and evil, well, it crumbles pretty quickly if we're able to say that God could have a morally defensible reason for suffering that is in keeping with his character. If we ourselves allow a measure of pain because there might be something better achieved by it, whether it's physical training or a medical intervention or um, a teaching moment, well, then we can't rule out that God, the infinite God, may have greater good purposes for the suffering that we experience earthside. And so therefore, logically, we cannot rule out God's power or his goodness due to suffering. And if you want to dig deeper on this, you can read Alvin Plantiga's work. Um, pop it up on the screen. He wrote a book called God, Freedom and Evil. Now, this, um, this logic argument was updated and expanded by J.L. Schellenberg, um, in the 1990s, and then he revised it more broadly for a book in 2015. And he set out to prove the non-existence of God, and he did it by this argument. He said, if a perfectly loving God exists, then there exists a God who is always open to a, perfect, to a, sorry, to a personal relationship with any finite person. Yet, as Schellingberg notes, people are open... And by that, he means that they're not closed to the idea of God per se, but that they do not report any experience of God. And therefore, he concludes God does not exist. If God is able to reveal himself and doesn't, Schellingberg concludes that a perfectly loving God does not exist. This argument has been called the hiddenness of God. If God exists and he is loving and people do not object to the idea of God, why does he not reveal himself? Why does he remain hidden? Is it that he hides himself? Why would a loving God do that? Schellingberg's argument is that a loving God wouldn't do that, and therefore there is no such thing. So it's not that he's not hiding, it's just that he doesn't exist. 
And if you're interested in following this up more, you can read Michael Ray's book, The Hiddenness of God, which, ref which refutes, refutes, ah, refutes this claim. Um, but basically, he, he speaks about how Schellingberg's argument rests on the premise that, that God's silence or hiddenness can only be attributed to either him lacking love or not existing. Um, and that that argument is really approach from how we as humans uh, operate. Whereas the Bible presents God as so much more complex and inscrutable than that. It suggests that God's silence is at times for our good and to achieve his good goals. And we see that all through the Bible. There's many stories in the Bible of God's silence. Uh, we heard Psalm 13 read earlier. Also in Psalm 10, the psalmist says, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? And like we read in Psalm 22 earlier, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. There are times in the Bible when cries are answered. We see this in Egypt when God says to Moses, he says, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. Or when God closes the mouths of the lions when Daniel is placed in the den, he intervenes. But there are other times, like when Joseph is betrayed by his brothers and he's sent into slavery, that God doesn't answer his cries. And it's after a very long time that Joseph can say to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We don't often get a direct answer to our suffering, but we can see that God can work good, both in his active intervening presence and in his seemingly removed absence. And not only that, but he allows and legitimizes our cries and laments through recording them in scripture as a way of validating our concerns for his hiddenness and giving us permission to have doubts and to question him when we can't see the way. Now, whilst we often focus on this, the problem of evil and suffering through a Christian lens, the problem is a problem for atheists too. Uh, Richard Dawkins says this, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Well, this kind of nihilism is very hard to maintain in the face of reality. No one actually lives like this. How could one believe that there is no evil when they read of the torture that Aidan Aslan went through at the hands of Russian soldiers? 
or no good after hearing the story of a 73-year-old cancer survivor, Rhonda Hayes. There were a couple of guys that heard about how her, her house was flooded in the New South Wales 2022 floods, and they decided to gather a group of volunteers to come, and they worked nonstop to rebuild her house from the ground up. They didn't know her, they didn't have a connection with her, but they had compassion on her and, and did that amazing work. It is illogical to think that both egregious evil and selfless good do not exist. In fact, evil and suffering may be evidence for God. We can't really say that there are moral evils without God. The ought-tos, that is, things that ought to be like this, or things that ought not to be like this. For example, people ought not to be abused and attacked because of their race, we would say. Or we have enough resources in the world that people ought not to be hungry and living in poverty. These ought-tos point to purpose, design, universal truths that are self-evident, which secularism doesn't have a decent answer for. Instead, our society abates itself through the panacea of nostalgia and novelty, I think. As a society, we find it hard to tolerate pain, and we always see it as a problem to escape and to maximize pleasure is the goal of our lives. We run from pain and we pursue pleasure. And so when we're in the cost of living crisis and a climate crisis and coming out of a pandemic, it's fascinating to see how many shows and things from the past are getting this resurgence as pop culture renaissance comes about and reboots all these old classics. I don't know whether you've noticed it, but Recently, there's been a movie about um, the Super Mario Brothers. There's been a movie about Tetris. Uh, of course, there's a movie about Barbie, which is all the news at the moment. Um, there's been a new Indiana Jones movie. Uh, there's been an update of The Little Mermaid. There's been plenty of old things that are new again. And I wonder that could it be that we just long to be back playing games and watching TV as kids with no responsibilities? And so we look to the past, or we numb ourselves with novelties. We try the latest food experiences, we um, distract ourselves with new memes, we, we find new places to go to hang out with, um, new shows to binge. Neither looking to the past or distracting ourselves with the next thing really explains or deals with the world that we live in. These are just panaceas. C.E.M. Jode was a philosopher and a vehement rationalist and agnostic. He was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, and they argued back and forth about the problem of evil and Christianity. In the latter years of his life, he came to the conclusion that Christianity gave a more satisfying answer to the question of evil and suffering. He said this, these doctrines seem to me to cover more of the facts of life than any others with which I am acquainted. 
They make sense of experience. And in particular, they make sense of its pain and frustration as no others do. So, evil and suffering are a problem for any worldview. But I would want to argue that a Christian perspective offers a way that is both reasonable and comforting. It doesn't seek to deny evil, but it does not give it the last word either. We can conceive of an all-loving God who would only allow suffering for good purposes. And if that God is all-powerful, he's able to achieve those purposes. This does not mean that evil is somehow good. Please don't hear me saying that. But God takes bad things and somehow brings about something redemptive. It's just who he is. And it may not happen straight away, and it may not even be one particular thing. But the direction that God always steers is towards hope. And so let's look together at the Christian hope that we have for this problem. We see this in Psalm 22 that Tash read out earlier. The psalm starts in a place of despair, but it ends in a place of hope and praise. It started with God seemingly absent, and it ends uh, up in verse 24. It says that he has not hidden his face, but he has listened to his cry for help. In verse 6, the psalmist is despised by everyone. And in verse 24, the Lord has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. We see a great contrast all the way through the psalm. But it's not clear what has happened, what has changed. We don't necessarily see any resolution to the problems that the psalmist is facing. But what we can notice is a desire for God's presence, which seems to be enough. And although the psalmist calls out in confusion and fear, he always addresses God as my God. The psalmist never doubts that God can save. He trusts him beyond what he is presently experiencing. And this psalm, Psalm 22, comes to mean even more when we hear it on the lips of Jesus on the cross. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 50. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came all over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with white vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. What we can know about God is that he became one of us in our suffering. He doesn't just know our situation intellectually, 
because he is omniscient or seeing. He knows it on the inside. And I think that when we're going through something awful, we tend not to want an explanation as much as consolation. What we really want is someone to understand, someone to hold that pain with us, someone who gets it. And the incarnation of the Lord Jesus gives us that. Recently, I've been reading uh, a book called The Trauma Cleaner. It tells the story of a woman who runs a specialized trauma cleaning service. They're the ones that go and clean up after crime scenes and suicides and floods and fires and hoarders and things like that to places where there is pain and hopelessness and it's etched into every fibre of the house to places where death and decay and disorder have engulfed every last vestige of humanity in that place and all that's left is just filth and misery. She goes in and treats each client with dignity and compassion. She gently talks to them and reassures them and, and she brings order and calm to places of suffering and squalor. Well, just like this, we find Jesus leaving the intimacy and sanctuary of heaven to walk in our pain-filled footsteps. Jesus is the trauma cleaner. He walked towards people who were outcasts. He walked towards the unacceptable and the unwanted. He walked on as a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, to die on a dishonorable, a dishonorable death on the cross. He was despised and he was mocked. He died outside the city in a garbage dump. And we now can be confident that we are not God-forsaken because Jesus was. Miroslav Volf, the theologian, says this, the intellectual question concerning the problem of evil is not the most important question. The most important question is the overcoming of evil. And in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we see this. We see our future hope. We see that evil and suffering are not the end. We see that heaven is not just consolation for Christians to kind of get through this life with our teeth grit, but it is a restoration. It is the beginning of making all things new and his resurrection gives us a taste of what's to come. I remember waking up in my old childhood bed at my parents' house after barely sleeping at all that night. Except now I was here with four little ones and thinking over and over again, this can't be happening, this can't be happening to me. My marriage was over. My prayers and tears didn't bring the outcome that I'd longed for. And I didn't know what to do. Uh, so I went for a walk. But each step felt like a huge effort. Everything felt so hard and heavy and my mind just couldn't stop whirling, but no clarity ever came. And I didn't know what to do. 
So I started whispering the words of the hymn, Be Still My Soul to Myself. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change, he will remain. Be still, my soul, your God will undertake to guide the future as in ages past. Your hope, your mind, your will let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright. As I walked and mouthed these words, I noticed the signs of spring and life coming up all around in the wattle and the white bells of the, the onion weed and coming up in the new grass on the roadside. There were signs of new life, of resurrection. And in that moment there, nothing felt more sure than that I belonged to God and that I knew he was here with me and that he is good. How and why, I didn't know. But his hope clung to the air like water vapor and I was so conscious of his presence. Evil is part of our lives post-Eden, but it will not always be. We can't be sure of the why, but we can know that it can't be because he doesn't love us or that God is not good because the cross proves that. Returning to the story of the brothers Karamazov, Elosha's approach to the problem was quite different to Ivan's. He acknowledges the awfulness of innocent suffering, but he doesn't see it as a problem to analyze with his mind so much as a problem to respond to with his heart. I do not know the answer to the problem of evil, Elosha said, but I do know love. The love that he knows motivates him to care for those who are suffering and to suffer alongside them. It is the love found in the Lord Jesus that transforms an abstract God, in inverted commas, into my God, my God, so that we can join in with the chorus of people at the end of Psalm 22 who proclaim, he has done it. He has done it. God has done it. This is our hope. He has done it. Let us hold on to that hope. Amen. Oh,